when you think about the people that Jesus called, just know that he didn't go to the high and mighty. He didn't go to the people with uh, titles and positions. Instead, uh, as we saw last week, he went to a couple of a fisherman, Peter and Andrew, then to another, other uh, business partners, James and John. And today we're going to see more of those people. He talked with uh, the sick. He talked with uh, mothers. He talked with outcasts. He's going to talk with the paraplegic. He's going to talk with the black sheep of the family. Talks with tax collectors. These are the kind of people that Jesus calls to follow him. So, Mark, Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 22. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why, did this, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting? but yours are not. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Well, last week we saw that Mark was an assistant, an interpreter to Peter. And while Peter was in prison in Rome, Mark, uh, at that time or near after his death, Mark wrote down the, the recollections of Peter and his time with Jesus. 
And Mark is writing to a Roman audience, and Romans are a little bit different than the Greeks. Uh, Greeks are big on ideas. Romans are big on action. And in this gospel of Mark, there is uh, little on Jesus' teachings. In fact, every time in chapter 1 that we saw last week that we came to a time when Jesus taught, we don't hear the teaching. Instead, it goes straight to the action of something that happened either while Jesus was teaching or before or after he was teaching. Uh, in the introduction of chapter 1, we see that the portrayal that Peter gives through Mark is Jesus, the powerful servant. In chapter 2, we enter into the picture of the servant who is on mission. A servant who's on mission. At the very beginning of chapter 2, it says the people heard that he had come home. He had, he had returned to Capernaum. He had just gone out to the villages around. You remember, he had spent the morning in prayer and discerned that this is what he was called to do, to go out and preach. And so he left. And for some unknown period of time, he was out doing that in the northern part of Israel and then came back to the town of Capernaum. And the people said he had come home. Well, Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. During Jesus' three years of ministry, he moved about, probably spending many evenings camping out. But the town of Capernaum was thought of as his home. As I shared with you last week, it's a beautiful place right on the, the shore of Galilee. And it was, it was probably more like a home base from which he traveled in the northern parts of Israel. Now, I don't think Jesus chose Capernaum just because it was beautiful and a peaceful place, but that he chose the place because that's where the fishermen gathered and people from the region would come and buy their fish. It was where the people were at. That's why I believe Jesus chose that place. Just about a mile north of Capernaum, walking distance, was a small town called Bethsaida. It, next to it is one of the seven springs that feed the Sea of Galilee. Now, the fishermen practically lived near that spring during the cool season because that's when the fish would come and spawn near that spring. And so during that season, the men didn't go out on their boats to fish in the middle of the lake. Instead, they fished from the shore, throwing out their nets, catching the fish that were gathered there near the spring. So it was along this shore that Jesus first called his followers, called Peter and Andrew, then called the business partners, James and John. And later we're going to hear about Levi, who was also along the shore. It was near this shore where fishermen were working, cleaning their nets and getting fish ready to sell in the market that Jesus climbed a nearby hill and preached the Sermon on the Mount. So maybe uh, you've read in John where it says that, that John and his brother uh, lived in Bethsaida. Well, it's true, Bethsaida and Capernaum were right next to each other. So they probably lived, uh, they lived in their home with their extended family in Capernaum and then walked to work in Bethsaida. They were business partners with two other brothers, James and John. So Jesus comes back from uh, preaching in other towns around northern Israel, and he goes to someone's house. Now, Mark's gospel doesn't specify whose house it is, but many assume that he's back at Peter's and, and, and Andrew's family home. And the people, when they hear that Jesus has come back to town, they don't sit around and wait for the Sabbath day to come around to go hear Jesus. Instead, they immediately go flocking to where he's at, and they surround this house where he's staying. Nobody wastes any time. And so now, uh, back in chapter 1, we read that Jesus already spent a whole evening in the town of Capernaum healing people at this same house. 
in front of this same house. So what does Jesus do when the people come again? The Scripture says that He preached the Word to them. Again, there's no details on what He taught at this moment, but instead, the recollections of Peter move on to the action that starts occurring while Jesus is teaching. There are four friends that show up, and these four friends know of another person that got left out on the healing last time that Jesus was in town. There was a friend of these four, and and he was a paralytic. He was flat on his back, and he couldn't move. Now, we don't know if the paralytic requested his friend's help or not, but the determination of these four friends makes me think that they had something to do with initiating getting their friend to Jesus. They were not going to be discouraged by some crowds surrounding the house. Instead, they come up with a solution to get their friend to Jesus. And what they do is they skirt the way around and come up on the top of the house, and they begin digging through the roof of this house, whether it was mud and uh, sticks or tiles or whatever it may have been, they start busting through. Now, if Jesus is standing in the doorway of this house and teaching, I'm sure there was a point where the teaching, it became a bit of an interruption as things start falling through the roof and there's people up above and the crowd is starting to be distracted. And I'm sure there was a point where Jesus just had to stop and observe these guys as they lowered their friend down through the roof on a mat. And the gospel records this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the paralytic and his friends were expecting, but I can bet that it probably wasn't those words. Sons, your, son, your sins are forgiven. I, you know, they were concerned about this man and his physical body. They were bringing him to be healed. Yet Jesus, the first words that come out of his mouth are, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, I want you to know that just in this moment, again, why were these words recorded? If this, if this gospel is all about action and what's going on, what was important about these words? Well, I want you to know that with these words, Jesus has just set off a truth bomb. A big truth bomb just went off. Now, before we look at that explosion of truth that he just spoke, I want, I want you to notice something. The gospel account says Jesus saw their faith, not his faith, not the paralytic's faith. I just want you to know there was something that happened because of these four, these four stretcher bearers that brought their friend to Jesus. It was something about their faith that Jesus noticed. So I just want you to know, if you got some people around you saying that you're not healed because of your lack of faith, just remember it may not be your faith that's the problem. It's probably the people around you. It might be their problem, their lack of faith. Second thing on on this is that I really hope that you got four friends like this man. I really hope you got four friends like this man did. You know, most of the time we enjoy being the ones who get to carry one of the corners of the stretcher for someone else. It's a joy to help someone else. It's a joy to bring someone else to Jesus. But when it's you, flat on your back, not able to do anything about your condition or your circumstances, it's very humbling to be carried. Do you have friends like that? And do you have the humility to let them carry you when you're down and out. We need the body of Christ. We need holy community. You know, if you don't have four friends like that, it's really nobody's fault but your own. 
you've got to start putting yourself out there and building friendships. That building sometimes takes effort. Be a friend. Don't wait for friends to magically appear. I also want you to know that, that in being stretcher bearers, maybe some of us need to keep our eyes a little more open to the needs around us. Be a little more sensitive in listening to those who maybe need to get to Jesus and be ready to pick up one of those corners of the mat for somebody. Um, I want to tell you just about a little instance, an opportunity to do that. I know that maybe some of you are, are kind of just, I'm, I'm ready, I just need to know. I, I need to know where I can help, what I can do. Um, I've been meeting with a group of guys on Thursday mornings and then uh, from Highland, and then once a month we get together uh, a monthly gathering, uh, a citywide gathering of men called Asheville Men's Breakfast. And uh, it's, it's kind of spearheaded by three churches, uh, our church being one of the three. And, um, and uh, among the, the three pastors, we've gotten together and really prayed about the needs and what we could do uh, among men. Um, and one of the needs that men need is outlet to serve. And uh, we decided that we found a, a family that was in need, a man and his uh, two children that were kind of down and out. And uh, we decided that, that there needed to be kind of an extreme makeover for this guy and his family to get them back on their feet. And so uh, we pulled together some resources. Uh, Highland contributed $1,000 to the total $6,000 that was raised. A small mobile home was purchased, and then uh, all the things that were needed to renovate this home were given. Uh, counseling services were giving, given to this man, uh, financial counseling and marital counseling, and uh, some support began coming around this man. Uh, the men for the past three weeks have been working on uh, restoring this place, have done a great job, and there's just ele- about 11 to 12 things left to do before this family can move in. And I just wanted to let you know about this opportunity. I have a list of those 11 things. Uh, some are like uh, putting grout uh, on a countertop, a tile countertop. Uh, one is just cleaning the place from top to bottom, floors, counters, toilets, that sort of thing. Another is building a bunk bed. There's a deck that needs to be built. The materials are there. It's just the need uh, for the labor to do it. There's some minor electrical work, minor plumbing to be done, uh, some things like that. So if you're someone that's like, you know what, I got some skills like that, and I'd love to be a part of helping someone get back on their feet. And that's really what this is, what's happening with this man is that he is the paralytic, and he's being brought to Jesus by not just four people, but by a huge group of people that have come around him. And um, I think it would be a great thing. I also want to let you know about some other, other people that maybe we don't always consider that have suffered a, a, a type of paralysis. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but statistics would show that in a congregation this size, one out of four people in this congregation have a family member or extended family member that is struggling with mental illness. One out of four. And I know that not just those who struggle with actual mental illness feel paralyzed in life, but sometimes family members trying to bring the support and the care also come to this place of just going, I don't know what to do. And um, I want you to know about an organization called One Mind that is there to bring uh, support to families that are going through this. Um, Also resources of of faith-based writings and books that help uh, families who are trying to support those with mental illness. And I just want you to know that in this church, there are uh, a few families that have, have, have been in this, in this fight and have been in the practice of bringing someone that they love to Jesus on the, on, on the stretcher. And if you're needing some help, someone to help 
hold up a corner that you're just getting so tired of holding up, I encourage you to talk with me and I can introduce you and connect you with some of those people. Um, but I know that maybe those are maybe extreme cases that we think of when you think of some, someone being paralyzed. But I want you to know that some of you and myself have faced a, parala, para, a, parala, a paralysis. Thank you very much. A paralysis of the heart. I know that sometimes fear can do that. I know that anger can do that. I know that guilt can paralyze a heart, can keep you from offering yourself to God and his kingdom, can make you feel like that you're worthless or that you're, you, can't, you don't have anything to contribute. I know that sometimes it keeps you from acting on the truth or speaking the truth. And that is nothing more than what the enemy wants to do is to keep you from acting on the truth, to keep you from coming to Jesus or to keep you from bringing someone else to Jesus. The enemy would love nothing better than to keep you frozen in your tracks. And I just want you to know that there is a moment where we all need to come before Jesus and say, Lord, there are paralyzed places in my heart. Please change that. I know that sometimes it may seem very serious, and I know maybe in my instance it seems very minor. I, when I was in Israel, in fact, when we went to see Peter's house, there by the Lake of Galilee, uh, this story was read. And I, I was there in prayer, just saying, Lord, there's, there's parts of my life uh, in leading this church that have, parts of my life that have just withered. That creative part of my life of being able to contribute creatively uh, just isn't there anymore. I, I'm so busy with other details, administrating a church and trying to keep things rolling. And uh, I haven't written a song, contributed a writing, or anything like that in, you know, four and a half years. God, there's, there's a part of me that's just paralyzed. Please wake it up again. And I know that maybe that's a simple example, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And I know that Jesus can wake up those parts of our lives. And I'm asking him to do that in me. And I hope that you won't be afraid to ask Jesus to do the same in you. So, to the truth bomb. The gospel account says that Jesus said, son, your sons are forgiven. Okay, Jesus, I just want to make this clear. Jesus isn't forgiving this paralytic because the day before the paralytic got in a fight with Jesus. Uh, Jesus wasn't forgiving a wrong done to him by the paralytic. Jesus says sins, as in multiple, a lifetime of sin. So like the Jewish teachers of the law and the Roman audience listening to this letter from Mark, we should also say, who does this guy think he is forgiving sins? I mean, the Jewish teachers were correct in their, in their beliefs, in their doctrine. It would be blasphemy for a man to say what only God could say. But there's a difference between having correct doctrine and the application of doctrine. Jesus is saying more than a man could or should say. So Jesus then gives proof that he is more than a man. Jesus knows their thoughts about what he said, so he addresses it in a logical, problem-solving way. You know what? There are, there are crazy, blasphemous people today who could speak the words, say, your sins are forgiven, I am the prophet, or whatever. Yet it wouldn't be true because there's no power in their words to forgive. 
So Jesus gives proof that he is speaking more than words, but he has power behind those words to forgive. He demonstrates that the power, that power by telling the man to get up and walk. And he asks the question, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Yes. The answer to that question is yes. Lots of crazy people could say that. But is it easy to say get up and walk to a paralytic? No. Jesus makes his point, and when the man gets up and walks off in front of them all, there is no doubt in my mind that this man not only walked away free from paralysis, but walked away free from the burden of sin and guilt. His sins really were forgiven. Now, which did Jesus say first? Did he say, get up and walk first, or your sins are forgiven first? You know, he spoke to the condition of the paralytic soul before he spoke to the condition of his body. Now, does Jesus care for both our soul and body? Yes. Yes, of course he does. That's why he was healing so many people, because he cared. He had compassion on them. But does the soul come before the body? Yes. We're beginning to see his mission priority. We're beginning to see that Jesus came to forgive sinners. Mark goes on recording Peter's memory of Jesus on the move. And and after this, Jesus is out beside the lake, which is just a few steps away from this house. The people from the town come to him and they begin following him as he walks along. And, And he probably stops along someplace and begins to teach them. And again, there's no details on what Jesus says, but straight to the action, what Jesus does. Jesus on the move. Now, who else is out by the lakeside? Well, lo and behold, there's a guy named Levi, also known as Matthew, who wrote and recorded the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew has got a pretty nice setup for his tax collector's booth right on the beach. I mean, wouldn't you like to have an office on the beach? I mean... You know, you can probably imagine Levi sitting back. He's got some of his peons working for him, collecting taxes. And he's sitting back, feeling the nice breeze blowing off the Galilee, holding his pina colada, taking a little sip every now and then. And, you know, and he's enjoying skimming off a little off the top. You know, this is what he's doing. That's what all tax collectors do. And in the eyes of his Jewish countrymen, Levi was a scumbag trader working for the occupying forces of Rome. Now, if you were a good Jewish boy growing up in Israel, you probably didn't aspire or dream of being a tax collector. I mean, Levi probably as a child didn't go, you know, I really hope that someday I could become a a scumbag trader. He, he 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 didn't dream of that as a child. So somewhere along the line in Levi's life, there was probably something that was pushing him towards this. There was probably, Levi was probably doing a little bit of wild living before he ever became a tax collector. He probably wasn't a good practicing Jew. And he was probably into the the pina colada life and probably wasn't on good terms with the rest of his family once he chose this profession. He was a traitor. Now, Levi probably dealt with a lot of people, his countrymen, his family, who looked down on him. He probably dealt with a lot of shame. I don't know if any of you have ever been in that position, feeling like you're the black sheep of the family, 
feeling like you've been pushed out a little bit, not by just your family, but even maybe by people in the neighborhood or in society, or maybe you've even experienced that in a church before. Now, Levi, I want you to know, doesn't come seeking Jesus. Jesus comes seeking after Levi. Don't you forget that. You see, sin and scandal don't scare Jesus. Jesus is not surprised by sin. It doesn't shock him. Jesus tells Levi to follow him, and Levi does. Jesus' follow me was an invitation to discipleship. And you know what? There were other rabbis, other teachers doing the same thing that Jesus did. They would call men to follow them. But no rabbi in Israel would have dreamed of calling a tax collector into apprenticeship. A rabbi would have picked the best student at one of the local synagogues, not the family black sheep. But something about Jesus' invitation to follow hits something deep in Levi. Maybe an excitement. Maybe a, really, me? You're talking to me? You see me at this booth. You know who I am. And you want me to follow you? What would an honorable person like you, Jesus, want to do with me? Or maybe, maybe working that cushy job by the beach, maybe the, the pina colada life really wasn't that fulfilling. And maybe Levi knew, maybe he wished for something more. And this was the big opportunity. Jesus was inviting him to something more. And Levi follows You know what Levi does for Jesus? The first thing that he wants to do is he wants to throw a a farewell party to all his friends because he's going to be going off with Jesus. And he invites Jesus to come along. Come to my house. Come to the party. Now, Levi's friends are kind of the same sort that he is. Uh, Probably fellow tax collectors, fellow traders, people that are shunned by the community. And Jesus isn't ashamed to hang out with these people who have been pushed out to the fringe of society. Jesus goes to this feast party and he brings all his disciples with him. Now, Levi, you know what Levi's trying to do? He's trying to give his best to Jesus. And you know what? Jesus receives it. Jesus doesn't say, I'm sorry, Levi. Um, You know what? Maybe if we had this party somewhere else, I could receive what you're giving. Or, Or maybe if there was a different crowd invited. No. Jesus receives what Levi offers. Levi is trying to give his best, and Jesus receives it. Eating a meal with someone in your home is an invitation to friendship. Sharing a meal breaks down walls. You guys have experienced this. I mean, some of you who are, uh, have a business or, or meet with people for a, a kind of a work meeting or, or with a coworker, what do you do if you want it to be a more informal meeting? Usually you'll go get a cup of coffee, or you'll meet at a restaurant and have lunch, and you'll talk and discuss your agenda and, and your things about work over lunch. And it's, it's just more relaxed. There's something, there's more give and take. You know what happens if you take another step and you invite a coworker or someone that you know in that realm to your house for dinner? Everybody knows that's an invitation to friendship. I mean, that's kind of going beyond what you have to do in the business world to get things done. That's going beyond That's an invitation to friendship. And that's what's going on with Jesus and Levi this meal. And as we read after this, Jesus 
explains that his friendship with Levi and his friends is part of his mission. It's part of his mission to be the doctor among the sick. Not to hang out with the spiritually healthy, but to hang out with those who are spiritually unhealthy. Who are they called? The sinners. The Pharisees' question to Jesus was really, how come you don't separate yourself from sinful people? You know, that's a question that's still asked by really religious people in churches today. And they try to enforce it. And it's really something that Jesus didn't practice. In fact, you know, though Jesus was without sin, he did not isolate himself from sinners, but in fact, intentionally sought them out. The servant Jesus is on mission seeking sinners. In fact, Jesus said, when you have a party at your house, don't invite your typical friends. Invite those that normally wouldn't be invited to a party. Invite the lame, the sick. Invite the tax collectors, those with bad reputations. When's the last time that you had a dinner at your home and you invited somebody that didn't have such a good reputation? When's the last time that you invited somebody that really wasn't a friend, but maybe you were going to say, I want to invite you into friendship? That's the kind of thing that Jesus does. And that's the kind of thing that he invites his followers to also do. The feasting Jesus and his disciples do with Levi causes another question from the Pharisees and and, and John's disciples. How come your disciples don't fast? I mean, we, we do, but you don't. And Jesus basically explains that it's not about following rules or following a form, but it's really about following him. There is a time for fasting and a time for feasting. And Jesus said, while he's there, it's a celebration time. Jesus goes on to talk about himself and talk about rules and form with the illustration of wineskins and cloth garments. You see, garments and wineskins are forms that cover or contain important things. Jesus and what he brings is the important thing. Does the container or form that you use have the ability to hold the important stuff? You know, an old piece of cloth has already shrunk, and if you patch it onto a new garment that will shrink, the new cloth and the old patch will pull apart from each other. Wine, as it ages, emits gases that expand as the wine matures and the wineskin stretches. So a wineskin, if you put new wine into an old wineskin that's already been stretched, the skin has already stretched all it can, and it will burst, no doubt. New goes with new, and old goes with old. You know, I've heard people use this, this parable and this illustration in talking about new churches and old churches, as if to say new churches are better. But I just want to ask you the question, which tastes better, old wine or new wine? It's the old wine, isn't it? The mature wine. But you know what happens with, with old, good-tasting wine? You drink it up, and you need some new wine to replace it. You need some new wine to replace it. And so when you make the new, you don't try to put it in an old form. You know, if we did what we do here in an older form of church, we might tear that church apart, and we don't want to do that. New with the new, old with old. The content is what is important, not the form. There will always be different forms, different wineskins, different clothing to be able to protect the content. The content I'm talking about is the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ, which is just as powerful as it was 2,000 years ago. For us today, it's more like sending a letter to our culture. 
And sometimes there's folks that send that letter to the wrong address because our culture has moved to a new address. And so what needs to happen is that we don't change the content of the letter. We just need to change the address. That's all we have to do. So change the address on the envelope, the form, the clothing, the wineskin. We don't need to change the content of the letter. There's a time for everything, and different times require different forms. But it's always time for the unchanging gospel. And today, from the gospel account of Mark, you've heard about the servant on the move who is on a mission to seek out sinners, not waiting for them to come to him. Jesus is not surprised by your sin. He is not shocked by your sin, but he is willing to forgive, and he invites you to join you in him, with him in his mission. Jesus doesn't separate you from himself because you're a sinner. In fact, he comes seeking you out. And he wants to pardon you of your sin that makes you want to run and hide from him. Don't run and hide. Jesus is coming to you. Nate's going to come up here and uh, he's going to be playing a song. And he plays that song. I want us to have a, a moment to respond to the message that we've heard in Mark today. Jesus may want to call you away from the pina colada life, the wild living. And I know maybe that you've dealt maybe with some shame. But I want you to know that Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with you. And he wants to invite you into friendship. You may be like the paralytic and have many concerns weighing you down that have just paralyzed you. And maybe sin is the last thing on your mind. But when you come to Jesus, one of the things he wants to do is say, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And when you're laid out before him, your soul, the guilt and sin laid bare, Jesus tenderly calls to you and calls you son or daughter like he did to that paralytic. And he deals with your sin like a father or mother would. He's not out to destroy you. He's out to rescue you, to save you. He's not out to crush you and to shame you, but to restore you, to make you new, and to lift you up and have you walk along beside him. Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive and wipe away sin. If you walked in with guilt, you can walk out of here today without it. If you walked in today with paralyzed places of your heart, you could possibly walk out with those things free, free to move, free to respond to Jesus. You need to bring it before the Son of God, the servant who has power to pardon sin and free you from that paralysis. So as the song is played, if you just need prayer, uh, you can come up here. If, if you don't want anybody to pray with you, you just want it to be between you and God and you feel like you need to do this outwardly to express what's going on, you can come up over here on this side and I won't bother you. No, none of our staff will pray with you. It can just be a moment between you and God. But if you do want a brother or sister in Christ to pray for you, you need a stretcher bearer, I'll be over here on this side. And if you need prayer, I'll be here.